Welcome to episode 278 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Remember back in the day when you attended networking dinners to get to know fellow coaches, consultants, authors, and podcast hosts? It was great to go to events where I kept crossing paths with a lot of the same people because the conversations just went deeper and often I found referral partners. Then being on Zoom became the same as going to events. I'm sure you would agree that virtual networking events can be very, very good and can also be quite meh. The difference is whether the host has thoughtfully designed the experience, understands how to use the technology, and attracts the kind of people you'd want to get to know. I hosted my first virtual networking event on March 13, 2020, which led to hosting a free weekly No More Bad Zoom virtual happy hour for the last two years. It has been such a joy to see the No More Bad Zoom community grow over the years and to hear about the numerous relationships that have begun in our breakout rooms. I particularly love how we've created a space to share our little and big wins. After two years of hosting, I'm ready to dream bigger and develop a resource that would provide even greater value to you and your fellow entrepreneurs. Because committing to this kind of consistent community building is what will help you take your business to the next level. And that's why I created the Content and Connection Club. Check out all the details and sign up for just $10 a month at contentandconnectionclub.com. The founder special ends April 30th, and then the price goes up to $25 a month. Check it all out at contentandconnectionclub.com. Now, on to this week's interview. Today's guest has made a career of making the very complex awesomely simple. He has spent the last three decades helping companies and people be more successful. He serves his clients as an executive coach, training facilitator, keynote speaker, and strategy advisor. Recognized as one of the top business thought leaders and leadership development experts in the world, he was named by the American Management Association as one of America's top 50 leaders to watch, along with Sergey Brin and Larry Page of Google and Jeff Bezos of Amazon. He's been a guest lecturer at more than 90 colleges and universities, including MIT, Stanford, Cornell, and the Wharton School of Business. He has been the owner or CEO of five companies, and currently serves as a board member or advisor to several organizations. Please join me in welcoming John Spence. <laughs> Thank you, Robbie. It's an honor to be here, sir. John, thanks for being here and joining us from your home in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, as you know, this show is about relationships, community building, but the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Uh, great question. And actually, uh, I have a new mentee that I had breakfast with this morning, and she asked me pretty much the same question. My definition of leadership is when you become a living example of what you hope your followers will one day become. And that great, uh, that's how I've had that for a while. Thank you. But this is the question she asked me this morning. When did you know you could be a leader? And it goes all the way back to high school. And uh, I was a football player. And uh, my coach came to me. I was okay. I was a pretty good football player. And my coach came to me one day and said, I'm going to make you the captain of the defensive team. And I said, okay, okay. And he said, prop. And I, up until that point, I was coming in dead last on laps and sprints. <laughs> Not exactly the fastest guy in the world as a nose guard or a tackle. Uh, and he said, one, one thing though, if you're going to be the captain, you have to come in in the top five on all running extra stuff, all laps, all sprints, everything. And I had never been in the top 30. I've never been on. And the very next day I came in top five on everything. And I realized I could have done it all along. I was just coasting. And it was a great example. He said, you have to be an example to everyone else. If you're going to be a captain on the football team, you have to set the example. And that was the very first time I realized that if I just changed my mindset, I could change my behaviors and that I, I had the ability to do it the whole time. I just wasn't living up to my potential. Powerful story, powerful example, and such a visual one too, as a person who 
you know, ran a very slow mile. <laughs> um, I was happy I didn't just walk it in high school. Um, what, you know, where, how much of that was mindset, right? Over physical ability, uh, probably a lot, actually. Uh, what I, the story I told myself, um, and I say that as a person who started running, albeit reluctantly in my 40s. <laughs> um, so uh, can you repeat the, the definition though? You, you live up to the potential that you want your leaders to become. Oh, my I, definition? Yeah, is, I loved it. Yeah, when you become a living example of what you hope your followers will one day become. And, and it's one of the reasons I've enjoyed leading companies organizations is it forces me to be a better person than I actually am. Uh, if I'm going to set the example, I have to be able to control my emotions, be motivated, be a lifelong learner, treat people with respect and dignity, all the things that I would want someone who worked with me, never for me, with me uh, to do, I had to do and I had to do it all the time. Uh, so I, you can't do what you feel like doing or what you can get away with. <laughs> you have to do what the right thing to do is so that other people do as well. I love it. I love it. It's like, it's very succinct. I've been asking this question now for five plus years. So I've heard a lot of different definitions. I love that this could be like literally written on a bumper sticker uh, yeah. and shared. I mean, it's, it's really crisp in that way. Um, but it also, I feel like it, it like the definition really brings a visual to mind and that it places a lot of responsibility on how we show up in the world, which is such a, you know, le leading self, right? First is, is so much of the equation. Um, I love that you went back to high school because sometimes I ask that question and people start with like my first job in business or something like in grad school. And you're like, but I'm going to, I'm going to wind the clock a little further back, John, because who you were even in high school and why that coach, even though you were not in the top five athletically showing up, what they saw in you had to do with who you were even before that moment. So how did you show up in, in, the playground spaces or, you know, were you, were you running for office? Were you the kid who organized other kids? You know, did other teachers sort of see that potential in you or, or were you someone who was trying to like kind of be in the corner and, and no one noticed me, I'll just do my old job and I'll be, I'll be fine here. So this, I love it. You should have been at breakfast with me this morning because my mentee asked me the same thing. Um, I was really, re and I was really popular in high school. I was captain of the, I mean, I was, class president, homecoming king, all that stuff. Uh, and the, I think what the coach saw me is on game day, I was really good. Uh, I played offense, defense when we were close to the goal line. Uh, my nickname in high school was the bear. Uh, <laughs> they would, you know, we were close. They just give me the ball and I power in there and score a lot of touchdowns and stuff. Uh, straight A's in, in high school and everything. However, interestingly enough, I went to a, one of the top prep schools in the country, and I was what's called a lifer, kindergarten through graduation. Um, very, very safe thing. My graduating class was only 67 people. When I got to college, I promptly failed out with a 1.6 GPA <laughs> because I, I, was, I was focused on the wrong things. I thought that college would be easy, so I didn't ask for help. And that got me to failure. I did eventually turn things around and graduate number three in the United States in my major, but it was that turnaround for being extremely successful in high school to failing out of a university that literally had a building named after my family to then going and turning it around on my own. Because by then my, my dad basically said, good luck. <laughs> but I mean, I feel like that gave you such empathy. Like if you hadn't had that spiral down, if you had just continued to do well, it's really hard to relate to other people who struggle that the fact that you had done well and, and it wasn't something that you thought of as effort. And then you had this whole new challenge. You said 60 some odd people in your graduating class. My graduating class was 1300. <laughs> uh, wow. Seven in mine and 40 of them. I had been through kindergarten with all the way right. through. Right. It, so it was like a giant family, but it was also a bubble. Yes. Uh, and when I got out of that bubble and got into the real world, the real world was not nearly uh, the way I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So how did you decide to pick yourself up? I mean, it's that that's a really interesting turnaround story that you you fall you fell out. Did you work for a little while when that was happening or did you give yourself uh, there some was space? a very specific moment in time? Um, I, I lived in Miami, Florida, 
And I, I failed out of the University of Miami where my father was one of the top alumni ever to graduate from the university. The year I got kicked out, he was on the board of directors and part of the law school was named after him. Uh, and I came up here to Gainesville, Florida, where I live now. And I figured I'd transfer to the University of Florida. And I can, I'll never forget this. I was standing in line with my transcripts at the registrar's office. And I walked up to the window and handed the woman my transcripts. And she looked down at me and went, <laughs> we don't take people like you. And I remember looking around and going, what do you mean? I mean, I, I want to go to the University of Florida. She goes, I don't care what we, you want. We don't want you. And I walked down the steps and I still live here so I can show people the steps I went down, sat on and cried. And I realized I was about to throw my dreams away, that I wanted to, to be successful, to travel the world, to, to run companies maybe one day. And that right then I was on track to basically say, just spend the rest of my life going, would you like fries for that today? Uh, and that's when I decided I would, that no one else could fix it for me that my parents couldn't fix it, my friends couldn't fix it, that, it, that if I wanted to turn things around, I was going to have to be the one that, that did it. And I set myself on a path uh, to try to learn everything I could about how to have a successful, happy, balanced life. And it's been now 40-something years I've been chasing that. Yeah, it is, it, and it, I think the chasing part illustrates that you don't ever reach the goal. It's, it's a constant learning process. So tangibly though you have this epiphany i mean in some ways the door was slammed even harder in your face <laughs> standing there yes uh i mean bureaucratically <laughs> you know how do you bounce back like what what's the next step you, night classes like how do you how do you get back on the academic track i mean you could have been self-made but it sounds like you graduated with a with high honors so you, you clearly got back on the academic path it's a great question and actually leads to another big turnaround in my life uh, from one of my most dear mentees who I'm still friends with was I had to, to restart college completely over at Santa Fe Community College, which and Santa Fe is a river here in Gainesville. So it's not New Mexico. It's right here in Gainesville where I live. This is 1984 or 85. And at that time, it was not a prestigious community college. And now it's one of the best in the country. But back then, eh, not so much. Basically, if you had a pulse, they had to let you in. Uh, and I got in and I was, I was in class one day telling one of my friends, I have to ace every class here. I've got to get straight A's if I ever want to get into the University of Florida. And one of my professors overheard me and said, uh, Roger Strickland, still because we had lunch last week or breakfast last week. He said, I know how to get, get you straight A's in college. I said, you do? He said, yeah, it only takes three things. And I went, tell me. He goes, number one, read the books. He said, at least in college, 99% of the answers are in the books. I said, I can do that. I can read. I, I haven't been up till now, but I, I'll go buy some of the textbooks and start reading them. He said, number two, which is the second most important thing I've ever learned, and it's gone back to one of the other things is, he said, ask for help. Ask the teachers, the TAs, the other students, the counseling center, just ask everybody in sight for help. Um, a lot of people think it's weak to ask for help. The most successful people I've ever met in my life are awesome at asking for help, feedback, input, guidance, suggestions. So I, you know, when I was at the University of Miami, I failed out because I didn't ask anybody for anything. I just, I didn't handle this on my own. Well, I think the 1.6 GPA showed pretty clearly that I could not handle it on my own. And the third thing he said is start study groups. So I would get up at the beginning of every class, at the beginning of every sem semester and go, hi, you know, everybody, my name's John Spence. Uh, I really want to do well in this class. I'm going to start a study group and uh, anybody's welcome to be in it as long as you have a 3.8 GPA or higher. Uh, <laughs> and nobody ever asked me my GPA because I was the one that set up the group. But that's what got me through Santa Fe. Uh, I got admitted to the University of Florida. And as I said, I graduated in the top in the United States. And, and really it was because I had a study group of six of us that went to class together. We had the same major, we shared notes, uh, we taught each other, we helped each other and we graduated number one through six from our college. Amazing. I mean, it, there's so much of that that also illustrates transferable skills to everything else you've done in life, John. Mm -hmm. And for you to learn that lesson as young as you did, painful for why you had to learn it, but peers, who didn't need to learn it the way you did, who skated by with a B average and, you know, which is sort of okay, 
may actually had the epiphany about how hard life is as I started work. Like, you know, that, that, that life will show up at some point and smack you upside the head if yes, you're not prepared. <laughs> you just happened to get a message at, you know, you weren't even 20, right? Like you were young. I was, I, because I failed out and had to restart, I was, I graduated at 23. Uh, so I was, yeah, I was probably in my er- very early 20s, late teens yeah. or early 20s. Yeah. Great lessons. I mean, those three key points, like, you know, do, do the work, right? Re- read the book. I mean, just this is, these are all like such key elements. Did you have a sense by that point what you wanted to do? I mean, you talked about entrepreneurship earlier. Did you know you wanted to get into this this space, or was there another path in front of you? No, I wanted to get into business at some level. Um, my degree was in marketing and public relations. So uh, when I got ready to graduate, what I did is I looked around and said, "What do I love to do that I love to get paid for?" So let me get a job that I would pay for if it was my vacation. So at that time in my life, I loved to fish. Uh, I like to play golf. I like to drink and lay on the beach. So I basically said, <laughs> how can I get a job to get paid? To lay? And I, I looked around and uh, I looked at sort of Bacardi rum at the time, uh, ran big fishing tournaments. My mom was a world-class angler. So I grew up fishing. Um, and so I said, I can go work at Bacardi rum or I could work for a big boat company or I get a job at a resort. Uh, and when I graduated, I did not, I've never sent a resume to anybody. I sent a letter out to the network I built of professionals while I was still in school and told them about my grades and the other thing I'd done, I, I, I had done. And I got several job offers and one of them was from a private Rockefeller foundation. And uh, when I got that, it was called the Billfish Foundation. And that company supported fishing, uh, fishery species around the world specifically sailfish, marlin, things like that. Um, I did not send a resume. I sent a 26-page proposal of everything I thought I could do for the organization. I I looked at it and said, this is the biggest final exam I'm going to take so far in my life. So I spent weeks preparing it. And when I I flew in to meet with Mr. Rockefeller, he said, I only have two questions for you, John. When do you want to start and how much do you want to make? And uh, so that was my first job. And I became CEO of that foundation when I was 26 years old. I knew that part of the story, but I didn't know the, how you got to that part of the story at 26 years old, particularly when you're talking about how you failed out of the, your first attempt at college. I mean, what an eight-year difference. Oh, like, wow. You know, not even a decade and what you re- went from, um, what you could do. There was something you said in sort of a, a casual way that I want to dig into the, the professional network that you built up while you were still in school, that's who you reached out to and sent these letters, these inquiry letters to. How did you think about doing that? Like a lot of people, even, you know, even adults who are professionals have qualms about how to do that. But here you are in your early 20s in college. What do you, what do, you do to reach out to a professional network? How are you thinking about that? So when I, let me go back to Santa Fe for a second. That From that study group idea, I learned the most important thing I've ever learned. I did a TED Talk on this. You become what you focus on and like the people you surround yourself with. So I knew that to be a professional once I graduated, I had to surround myself with successful professionals. So what I did is I joined every prof- student association for professional associations, American, or American Student Advertising Association, Public Relations Student Society of America, on and on and on. And when I would go to the conferences, trust me, I'd party, but I would during the day spend time meeting professionals, keeping up with them, keeping in touch. And I still do this to this day. I have a VIP list of senior executives and CEOs around the world that about once every 40 days, I send them a note of something I found in a magazine or a book I read or whatever. So I just kept in touch with everyone. You know, here's a, here's what I'm learning. Here's what I'm doing. Um, what can you, you know, how can you, can I help you? They would give me advice, suggestions. And then when I went to graduate, I had 30 or 40 people in fairly high positions in companies around the country that were hap- more than happy to help me because they'd known me for two years and they, they knew my track record. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds so simple as you're describing it, and it's incredibly effective. And there's so many people who don't do that, like when they're focused on whatever task they're on, whether that's I'm in college right now, or I have a job right now, they're not looking ahead at the horizon at what's coming up next or what 
might be out of their control that's coming up next. I mean, like no one anticipates a layoff. No one anticipates an economic downturn, right? No one anticipates a pandemic. Um, exactly. And so they, they're not nurturing their network all along. And so, you know, we've all gotten those desperate LinkedIn messages from people we haven't heard from in decades TV <laughs> attached. You're like the who, the what? Um, so, you know, I, I love this almost like a, it, it's built in you to have this mindset, but I'm actually curious if this is another trait that you picked up from your family. It sounds like both your parents were very involved professionally in communities. Is that something you witnessed them doing? And is that what made you realize, oh, this is effective. I can try that. It's, um, I, wa- I was not super close to my father, but he was a very, very famous attorney. Everybody knew who he was. If I, if I walked on and I said, my name's John Spence, go, oh, you're J.B. Spence's son. Uh, so he was insanely well networked, but he was in the law and I was not interested in, in being a lawyer in any way, shape or form. So his network didn't help me much. My mom's network, uh, fishing and, and outdoor stuff. She was an amazing woman that traveled all over the world, fishing and climbing mountains and such a little bit, but they were more like friends. Uh, but I'll give you an example. When I, when I got into the University of Florida, I sat down and I wrote a, a note to myself of exactly what I wanted my graduation day to look like. What awards would I have won? What would the dean say? You know, all that stuff. If I had a perfect graduation day, what would that look like? And then every day from that, when I wrote that till I graduated, I asked myself the same question. Is what I'm about to do right now going to make that day happen? If I could go to the pool or go fishing or whatever, and I could still get straight A's and make that happen, I'd go. If I couldn't, then I would be disciplined enough to stay and study. Uh, I did the same thing my my juice in the middle of my sophomore junior year. I said, what would my perfect job look like five years out of college? What would I get paid to do? Where would I go? How would I act and behave? I didn't think I was going to be a CEO, but I had this clear picture of this is what I really want. So I started while I was in college saying, you know, let me put these things in place. I, I'll give you a real quick example. You mentioned that I've been named one of the top 50 leaders in America to watch. When I, when I left the foundation and I decided I'd go out and be a consultant and things like that, I looked to see who the top consultant in the world at that time was. And it was Tom Peters. And, and many of your listeners uh, probably won't remember him. He's quite a while ago. But what I did is I made a checklist of everything Tom Peters did to become number one in the world. Where do you go to school? What do you do? What is jobs? What awards do you win? Created that. And then I got it and said, all right, what can I check off? How can I, what else can I check off that list? Uh, and a couple of years ago, I went to the Thinkers 50, the top 50 thinkers in the world. Uh, I got an award for, or I was nominated number eight. And he was sitting at my table getting his lifetime achievement award. So it was, it, it came full circle. The real, <laughs> that last part. <laughs> Wow. That's like a pinch me moment. So um, there's a way in which you're describing manifestation plus action. Mm-hmm. I think too many people visualize the, the rush through the, uh, you know, the, the finish line. They picture the tape breaking across their chest as they like magically win. What they don't do is all the pieces you just described, which is the preparation, the training, the discipline, the, the repetition, the exhaustion. Um, and then over again, right? Like they don't picture that part. They just picture the end result. And in some way their brain goes, that's really sounds great. And then relaxes. And you're like, I want to visualize everything and then come up with the milestones and also the daily reflection or not even daily, like for any action, is this moving me towards? And even in business, I'm thinking about how, you know, whenever we're making a business decision, it's always should go back to, does this move us closer to the, to the goal that we have in mind? And at some point, I think we, we stop setting good goals. We just sort of take action based on things put in front of us, the whole shiny object syndrome. Um, or a pandemic hits and we go, ah, and we destroy everything. <laughs> um, and sometimes you have to be kind of nimble, but I love this idea of having like a, something to aim for, like a really super crisp and clear smart goal that you hold yourself to. And I feel like that is a lesson that you keep repeating. So you probably always have like a, where, what's coming up next. And when you left, how long were you at the foundation? You, you were CEO? Only about six years. Uh, and I left not because I, things were going awesome. I yeah. just wasn't having fun anymore. I mean, it's one of the things I've learned in my life that 
if it isn't fun, it probably isn't worth doing. So it had become very political. I was going up to testify before Congress and, and the fun part of fishing and traveling around the world with billionaires on their private jets, that was interesting. But when your schedule is blocked out two years uh, and a lot of it is dealing with politicians and my, one of my highest values, actually my highest value is honesty. And I was dealing with a lot of people that didn't have that value and it made the job not fun anymore. By the way, to go back to that, that envisioning things mm-hmm. years ago, I, many years ago, I was asked by IBM to give a speech to about 1600 of their people on the essence of excellence. And I didn't know. <laughs> so I, I read about hundred to 120 business books a year. And I have ever since I graduated from college. So I started looking through the books and calling people and calling my network and calling CEOs. And I won't drag you through all that, but I, I boil it down to three things that I believe creates the essence of excellence. Focus, discipline, and action. You've got to have a really clear picture of what you're trying to achieve. That might be a strategic plan in a business. It might be your strategic plan for your life, which I think people should have. Uh, so focus on that daily, have the discipline to actually do the things on, that are necessary to get there, to pay the price, to achieve it. And if you love what you're doing, it doesn't feel like work or discipline. It feels like fun. And then the last thing is the amount of results you get are dependent on the amount of action you apply. So I, I have that FDA, I have it on a sticky <laughs> next to my computer to remind me, stay focused, be disciplined, take massive action. You think really successful people are remembered because they are great at quotable things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking maybe, like, John, like know. you know, people quote John Maxwell or people, you know what I mean? Like there's certain people who get quoted a lot or, and also misattributed or people steal their stuff because it's like, oh, it's so memorable. And I feel like this is kind of a way you're showing up. And I mean, I know you're this is not a new for you to be interviewed, but I just I love the way you're framing things as really clear takeaways. Um, you have this great lived experience. And then you're like, let me boil it down to you in three words. Well, it's um, people ask me sometimes, what's the skill that allowed you to succeed at this level? And it's pattern recognition. I built my entire career on looking for patterns. And so I, when I, much like in college, when I studied success and I studied leadership and I studied all those things, uh, you know, I like, as I said, I read a lot. I have friends who go, how many books have you read on leadership? I go, probably 200. Like, doesn't it get boring and redundant? I go, it doesn't get boring, but it does get redundant. But I love the redundancy because if I can read 5,000 pages and all these different authors say basically the same three or four or five things, I have found the pattern. I found the thread. And now I can take all that and get it down to like a focused discipline action uh, because that's a couple thousand pages in 20 years boiled down to three words. Right. You just saved all of us a couple of hundred hours worth of reading. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, um, you know, specifically thinking about networking, I'm curious, you got your inner circle, the people you're going to stay in touch with, you know, clearly. But then when you think about your second and third layers or second and third tiers of your network, the people that maybe you see once a year at a conference or you work with five years ago, but not right now. And I want to preface and say, these are people you like, (laughs) you enjoy these people. They enjoy you. How do you think about staying in touch and nurturing those connections? Any habits or philosophies or practices? You know, it's fascinating. Someone the other day asked me, and this is a great question, what has been great about the pandemic? And I had to think about that for a minute. And then I realized my, now that we're all used, getting used to Zoom uh, or whatever platform you might use, I spend more time now talking to my friends in Russia, Poland, New Zealand, Australia, my network of friends that I normally wouldn't see, but once every four or five years, you know, when I travel there, now I talk to every week. Uh, so I, now I, through technology, I've always kept in touch. But my main way is, and I'm a big believer on this in everything, but especially in work, uh, networking, it's 90% give, 10% ask. So I send out, you know, because my circle are all interested in business, leadership, strategy, things like that, organizational culture. When I'm reading a book or reading an article or I meet someone, I immediately send it out to my network and say, I think you'll find this helpful. And that keeps us in touch, talking about those topics, sharing ideas. Uh, And then I have another practice, which I I think is pretty important, is when I meet somebody I'm really, really impressed with, I ask them, who are three people that you're impressed with that you could introduce me to? 
And that builds my network of, of bright, talented, smart, high integrity, honest people. Because I figure if, if someone I really like lots a lot and trust and respect likes this other person, I'm probably going to like them too. Yeah. I mean, that's a really smart way to uh, snowball effect, right? Like to, to lead from one possibility to many more. Um, the, uh, the people you stay in touch with, you mentioned earlier that you actually have a list. How are you keeping track of things? Spreadsheets, stack of business cards, Rolodex, spread, you know, CRM, like how, how fancy or complicated do you make this? Okay, we uh, we use I, we can, I have a very complicated side to this, and I have a very easy side to it. We use Basecamp, and for for example, I do a, a lot of executive coaching, and I have for years. I record every session with permission from my client. I have all of the sessions, all of the slides, all of the workbooks that I've ever presented for the last seventeen years on file. And I had some clients that I've been working for for seventeen years. I can go back and look at the very first conversation we ever had. So I have a massive amount of tracking, but then I have a VIP list. Uh, I think it's up to about 167 people of the people I really respect. I've worked with CEOs of large companies, not just any, but these are people that I know when they get an email from me, they're going to open it immediately because they know it's going to be something of value. I, I just sent out an email today uh, and it's probably the first one I've sent out in about four weeks. Uh, my friend, Frank Sonnenberg, who's a tremendous expert on character, wrote a really good list called The Facts of Life. Unbelievable. So I put a little bit of stuff on the front of it and sent it out. Uh, when I, after we get done with this, I'll look and there'll probably be 20 or 30 emails from people thanking me for sending it to them. So you will send that, that, con- that piece of content that you really liked with a little uh, addendum from you, a little note from you, personalizing it to that whole list. Oftentimes too, like if it's an article from Harvard Business Review or something like that, I'll do a front. Here's why I think you should read it. Here's what's important. Then what the end is, I'll say comments from John. And I'll add three or four paragraphs of how I viewed it, what I think, um, examples, how I've seen in other companies and stuff like that. So it's got a personal touch of not only is this an article that I found really helpful, but I'm also staying connected to John's ideas, John's thoughts, what he's reading, what he's learning. And that makes it much more personalized. It makes it so much more valuable too. I mean, uh, a lot of people talk about, you know, either old fashioned clip something from the newspaper or now it's like click and share whatever article, but it's always about putting your own little spin. I've, I've been doing a version of this by sharing things that are from my network. A lot of people I know write for all these publications. So if I think it's in line with things I enjoy or my values, I'll share it with my my twist on LinkedIn, but now you're making me think I should probably be even more directly sharing it with or tagging people or emailing it to specific people with that same uh, piece that I already wrote about it because not everyone's going to see, right? It's like you throw things into the LinkedIn ether and you, you hope someone's noticing. Um, but yeah, so it's it's the it's your particular take on that article that makes it even more interesting and makes them pay attention to it differently. So that that's a really um, I, I don't want to say easy thing to do, but it's not a complicated thing to do compared to other, you know, ways of tracking things. Just takes discipline <laughs> yeah. and a little yeah. bit of time, a little bit you of know? time. I could easily just cut and paste a Harvard article or link to it and send it to everybody. Right. But that's not nearly as valuable as, as spending a half an hour to write something thoughtful to let people know that my brain is still working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they, and then they'll have a reason to reply too. it. It sort of ups the reason um, are you sending this in a way that makes it a personal effort? Like, uh, is it a mail merge? Is it a mailing list? I have a, I have a, uh, Microsoft, uh, office word list or whatever, a VIP, what I call my VIP group. And I let people know they don't ask to be on it. I put them on it and I let them know, I, I really enjoy working with you or being friends or whatever. I'm going to go ahead and put you on my VIP list and here's how I use it and what I do. And I always, and I send it to my coaching clients too. It, at the beginning, it always says to my VIP list and coaching clients, here's a few ideas, blah, 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 blah. So they know, and I, and I let them know from time to time, the whole group, this is not some mass mail. There's only 167 of you in the world on this list out of my 30, 28,000 LinkedIn connections and on and on and on and my regular email list. 167 are basically friends. Uh, I mean, I know yeah. their families. I know their kids. Uh, so they know it's, it's uh, very personalized. 
Yeah. And it's within a, a reasonable amount of people to know too. Um, I think sometimes uh, I, I connected a CRM once to my email thinking that was a good idea. And then it got bloated <laughs> with yeah. nonsense very quickly and became useless. So I love the idea of keeping it tight and trim and thoughtful about who's on this list and, and, and not just having a list, but that you are sort of regularly thinking about what to send them. Um, it's also a very good way to, um, I don't know, it's like the, the one-on-one can seem like very time consuming, but this way, if you send some broadcast message to this tight list, the replies will be one-on-one and that will be, you know, the 20 or 30 people will be the people you follow up with. Yeah, and I use it as a very, very subtle marketing theme because I'll say, you know, and which is always hundred percent true. I was working with one of my executive coaching clients and this happened, or I was giving a presentation on leadership at an organization and here's what I learned. Mm. Uh, so people know that I'm teaching this, I'm giving speeches on it. I'm doing coaching on it, things like that. My number one lead generation is from that list. And I don't do it because of that. I do because I want to help. And, you know, if you help enough other people, everything seems to work out okay. Uh, and then actually my number two lead generation thing is LinkedIn. Uh, very surprising me, but the kind of people that I work with um, are there and present on LinkedIn. Uh, so it's that's my other major go-to. I use other social platforms as well, but that's one to keep in touch with clients and friends from all over the world that have moved companies or whatever. Um, so those, it, it's helpful for the business too, but that's not why I do it. Right. And that, well, it goes back to you do things that you enjoy. And yeah. if it wasn't enjoyable, you would, you would stop doing it because then it would just, it wouldn't come across the same. Um, it, so is there any other tactic or strategy that you, you are thinking of before I shift gears here? For networking? Yeah. Um, again, my, I really should have been at breakfast because my mentee asked me this too. I, I wrote her a memo on it. Uh, which is one of the things I share too. When everybody asks, someone asks me an important question, instead of just trying to answer it, I write it all out in a couple of pages. Then I'll send that to my list too. Uh, or I put it up as a blog or something like that and say, here's a really interesting question that someone asked me. I thought you might like the answer to that too. The thing I told her about networking is just be curious, be genuinely interested in the other person. Focus 100% on you, how you can help them. Uh, and... If they're interested in you, they'll ask. I'll give you a quick example of open networking. When someone says, so John, what do you do? I go, I'm an author. I write books and I travel around teaching people the things in the books. 99% of the people never ask a follow-up question. What kind of books? Where do you go? So I go, okay. Then they go, it's not really that important to them, which is fine. I shouldn't be important to them. I'm just some guy. But the ones that go, oh, what kind of books? Business books. Where do you travel? All over the world. I don't know. And it goes to those sort of things. Now I go, this is someone that I, that I can connect with, not just someone that's looking for me to give them money <laughs> to buy something from or use their service. Right. Because sometimes that question of what do you do is really a way to weed out, oh, okay, I guess you don't need to buy anything from me. And if, if that's their only reason for asking, it becomes evident when they don't do the, how do you do that? Or any other kind of follow-up. What, do you, what does that mean? Um, that, that's, that will lead to more genuine conversations. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of times, John, um, that you have mentees and mm -hmm. it sounds like you also had some mentors yes. along the way. That's also a thing that feels very, um, uh, unclear. <laughs> how do you, how do you navigate that? So how, do, at this point in your life, how did mentees find you or how, do, how do you decide on a mentee relationship or is, yeah, where, where is that happening? Are people being assigned to you through a company or is there more of organic through? Okay, well, I'm now a sole proprietor. It's my wife and I and two employees. At this point, it's a little boutique consulting shop. Uh, but here's the way I do it. I give so many speeches around the world and people hear things like this on a podcast. And I will get a request every now and then, especially if I teach at a university, someone will ask me, will you be my mentor? And here's what I say. Are you serious? Because it's not easy. Yes. Okay. What are you interested in learning about? Let's use the example leadership. Then you go, great. You need to read the Leadership Challenge by Kuzis and Posner. You need to read Leaderology by Oleg Konovalov. And you need to read uh, Servant Leadership by Greenleaf. Read all three of those. Write me a book report on each. I'm going to quiz you on what was in the book. And if you pass that test, you will absolutely be one of my mentees. And I'm happy to help you. Out of hundreds and hundreds of people that have asked me to mentor them, 
I've only had about six that could make that jump. Uh, and most of them have been, we've been now become friends. I saw uh, today was an amazing day at lunch this morning. I saw one of my other mentees who I'm going to have breakfast or breakfast this morning, breakfast on Friday. I've been mentoring him since he got out of high school and he's now the CEO of a very large company. Uh, so it, it's fun. Now the mentor thing is my college professor who turned me around 36 years ago is still one of my mentors. Uh, we plan every 20 days to go to breakfast and spend time together. And then literally just a month ago, I asked someone else to mentor me. Um, I was doing a strategy work for a client and the CEO of the company uh, is amazing. And uh, I, uh, he's 83 and he's, he's built several successful companies and sold them. And, and he's hired me to do strategy for the whole company. I walked up afterwards and said, would you be willing to mentor me? Could we go to breakfast? You know what he said? With a pandemic, it'd be at 83. We better get it this fast. We don't know how much longer I'm going to last. <laughs> so last Friday, we went to breakfast for three hours. And I just sat totally wrapped. Uh, and I'll get an interesting thing. I asked him, what's the most important mistake? Or what's the biggest mistake you've made in business? And he said, not firing people fast enough. I, uh, I keep hoping that they'll get better. And most of the time, it's a mistake to wait. Uh, so that it goes to the phrase, hire slow, fire fast. I don't like to fire people, but he was giving me an example of a CEO that he had of one of his companies. And uh, he said something about the product and the CEO said, well, just lie to him. It's not that big of a deal. They'll never figure it out. And he said, I should have terminated him right there on the spot because that was a values violation. Right, right. And it's, it's like easier to know those things in retrospect the hindsight piece of that. What a great thing that you're constantly a student. Like I, I really am hearing from this conversation that that never has gone away for you, um, that you're very giving, you're willing to share everything you've learned. You want to keep passing along the knowledge, but it's because you're hungry to learn the knowledge as well, both through the voracious reading, um, the asking someone to be your mentor when you're already at the very top of your game. And some people might think, why would you need to? And you're like, because there's more to learn. Like, look at the success this person has had. And where else would I get this kind of life experience from? Like, you know, someone who's got a very different vantage point from you, uh, having a generational difference too about what they've experienced in life. Every, every modern thing that's changed since they started business. I mean, my kids are never going to lick a stamp. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, if they're young, they might never drive a car. My kids are four and six, and they may never learn how to write in cursive, and they may never learn to properly drive a car, although I'm going to make sure that they're going to learn how to drive a car. Cursive, less so. But the driving a car, I get it. Like It's really interesting to think about um, how much changes. And I think the other thing I'm hearing from our conversation is your adaptability, um, You know that, that you take your skills from one area of life and apply it to others, that you're, that you're not siloing who you are as you're growing. Um, and then you're not looking at your network in silos either. That list of 167 is probably an amazing array of different types of professions and industries. It's like, but you, you're, seeing a, you're seeing them as a one unit because you see something they all have in common, the thing that you care about, which is a value-based thing. Um, a lot of other people I imagine would have a, a list, but very like, diver you know, these are three people in this industry. Now these people are in this tech and I'm going to nurture them in different ways. And you're like, eh, like let's all learn together. So I I'm calling all this out. Cause I, I, I don't know if everyone listening can hear all that. Um, cause in some ways, like everything you're doing sounds so simple, but it's actually, actually because you're making the complex, awesomely simple. Thank you. <laughs> well, <laughs> Look, I I've been it in. make a note on the adaptability. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, adaptability. There's, there, have you ever heard of AQ? Okay, you EQ is your your IQ or IQ is how smart you are supposedly. Uh, EQ is your emotional quotient, which is AQ is your adaptability or agility quotient. And there's a couple of factors in that, but the two that I think are interesting for our discussion is number one is insatiable curiosity. If you're going to be adaptable and agile, you've got to be learning at an incredibly fast pace. The next one, ready for this one, is flexible thinking and unlearning. 
that if you can't let go of old ideas that don't work and unlearn almost as fast as you're learning, there's no way to be adaptable and agile. And I just think that's the coolest idea that you've got to be able to let go of stuff that doesn't work. Yeah, we often want the thing we learned, and especially if it took us a long time to learn, to be the last thing we ever have to learn (laughs) and don't want new information, like because we work so hard for that piece of information. But you're saying the more we're willing to kind of hold hold lightly to any any concept when new knowledge is brought bare, that allowed that's the adaptability piece. Like yeah, we cling uh, too much. I'll give you a very quick statistic that scares me, almost makes me sad. Uh, how many books do you think the average college graduate reads per year? for self-improvement or business improvement, to get better at some personal skill, interaction, conflict, or to get better at their job per year after they graduate from college? Three? 0.5. So here's the interesting thing. Uh, If you were to read, and anyone who knows me knows, I, I talk about this all the time, this statistic. If you were to read one book every other month or the, the equivalent thereof, watch YouTube videos, listen to podcasts, listen to audiobooks, read art, but the equivalent of one book every other month, six a year, you're in the top 1% in the United States of America or whatever country you live in. If you were to read one a month, 12 a year, you're in the top 1% on the face of the earth for self-learning. That's how low the bar is. Uh, so me at 120 for, you know, my library is about 3000 something books. Uh, that doesn't make me smart. It doesn't increase my IQ. It just increases my access to information. I mean, think about it. Some of the smartest people in the world sat down and wrote all their best ideas in a book that you can buy for 20 bucks or get for free. I mean, you you can have 50 years of learning in a couple hundred pages, maybe six or seven hours to read it. That's in, that's unheard of. But unfortunately, not everybody takes advantage of that. Comes down to focus, discipline, and action. I, that's what I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that somewhere. I think, John, did you remember Don't know where that came from? So well, here's my final question. It's one of my okay. favorite questions. Um, I am really looking forward to staying in touch. And you and I have some similar circles. So I, I'm hoping we'll continue to cross paths. I know that we uh, will. Let's say it's a year from now. And uh, we are talking about all of your successes. What are we going to be toasting? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Continuing to improve my health. Um, my, my, uh, values are honesty, health, love, laughter, learning, and contribution. And I score myself on a scale of one to 10 consistently on how well I'm doing that. Um, I was very, very, very heavy. I was 343 pounds. I've lost 95 pounds, uh, and I'm continuing along that. So I'm doing well on, on all my other values, but on that one value, I'm not fully in integrity with it yet. So I'm doing pretty good at the other stuff. But that's the one area that if a year from now, if we talked, I'd like to be 20 pounds lighter and uh, doing even more exercise. And it's been a long road. It's taken me a couple of years. But if you saw the way I looked, I saw a picture of me 11 years ago and it was scary. I'm literally double the size I am. I've lost a third of, a third of my body weight. And that's been uh, a journey. And the whole thing was driven by integrity is I was telling people that this was important to me and I wasn't living it. And I was embarrassed to be out of integrity with one of my values. Well, I cannot wait to celebrate. We'll, we'll do something um, calorie not, uh, in a light way while we <laughs> celebrate. We're, we're not going to celebrate with cheesecake. I'm curious, you, you ran through a list of what was the one through 10 that you judge yourself on again? You were saying you kept track Honesty, of- Honesty, health, love, laughter, learning, and contribution. And, and for each of those, I know exactly what they mean. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I'll, I'll be at Wharton next year, teaching an executive level cl- or next week, rather teaching an executive level class. I've been there 22 years and I teach a class on life strategies. And I will ask people in my class every year, I get about 120 senior executives. If, if you're not running a multi-billion dollar company, you're not in this conference that I teach at. How many of you have a written list of your personal core values that you use to live your life by on a daily basis and make all the decisions, major decisions in your life? Out of 120 people in the room, Robbie, how many raised their hands? You. <laughs> one or two. One or two. Yeah. I was yeah. like, and you yeah. look at it and say, how did you get to this? I, I've got, maybe we'll end on this. Another quote, not mine though, it's a Walt Disney quote. When values are clear, decisions are easy. 
And those are my core values. And I base everything on them. What I do, how I spend my time, who I spend my time with, what I spend my money on has to be in integrity with those. This has been amazing. And I have so much. I want to like go back and re-listen to it immediately. I'm sure others will as well. How can people find you and follow your work? Uh, it's pretty easy. Johnspence.com. Very innovative <laughs> address there. But in the spirit of what, and I do this every time I give a talk or a speech or I'm on a podcast is my personal email is john at johnspence.com. And if, if you need help or you want to, uh, and I'm not talking about business, if you want an idea, help, feedback, something like that, send me a personal note. I, I do get a lot of emails. So if it, and I mean this sincerely, if it's important or urgent, put that in all caps and I'll drop what I'm doing to answer it. But I'm more than happy to assist people in any way I'm able. Can't wait to see all, all the people who reach out to you. Thank you so much for having this conversation with us, John. It's wonderful. It's been my honor. It's been my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share it resonate with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 278. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review in Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week. And I'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. Us probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.